Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why am I with Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, visit seabussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Cricket podcast. You probably know that because uh, you've subscribed to it, most likely. We are coming to you from our various places across the world. Uh, today, I am in London. Adam is in Brisbane. And we are starting season nine of The Final Word. Season nine. Fancy that. Imagine it doesn't go back nine years, thankfully. We rotate seasons more quickly than that. But... The Australian cricket season is about to start and that's usually where we we flick over from the northern hemisphere to the southern and say this constitutes the start of a new season. So welcome to season nine, episode one, all of you and Adam. You just confused the trousers off people who now believe that I'm in Queensland and you're in the United Kingdom, but that's okay. It's a, it's a good oh. mistake to make off the top. The, the idea that I would have made it back to Australia and went through quarantine as you've done and that you would have just jumped over to the UK after calling T20 International yesterday and been let out into the public without um, going through your various quarantining yourself. It's the sort of picture that I hope that we can paint in 12 months or so when international travel might be liberated again. But for now, mm. yes, it's the other way around. You're in Brizzy and I'm at home, or my home here anyway, and we are 
um, ready to crack on once again. We had a big week last week, didn't we? We had the Ali Mitchell interview to start the proceedings, and that was well received. Thank you to everyone who listened to our conversation with Ali. She's such an impressive broadcaster and human being, full stop. And I'm glad that her story told in full over the course of an hour or whatever it was seemed to hit the right notes. And likewise, uh, everybody who got in touch about our Dean Jones Storytime special on the weekend, obviously that was a a fairly emotional episode uh, for both of us and uh, the way it was recorded. I just want to say about that episode to DC, we normally thank him at the end of the year, but we recorded that across, I think, four slabs because of my commentary uh, schedule. I kept dropping in for 20 minutes and going back upstairs for 20 minutes, and it meant for quite a rugged um, recording uh, process, but you would never know it from listening back. The editing was absolutely superb. So thank you, DC, for your patience, and yours as well, Jeff, because you had to wait for me to come back and record section by section. But putting that to one side, it was a, um, an episode I'm glad we did, uh, and I'm glad we recorded it when we did, when yeah, emotions were running fairly high and I'm glad we were able to pay that tribute to Dean Jones. Yeah, it's one of those ones where you know that that's what you have to do, you know, before I I, I was about to call you up to speak about it and we'd both thought the same thing at the same time, which was that, you know, this is what the next show needs to be and that we wanted to, you know, rather than, than just kind of bang on about it, we wanted to use the format of the show to to look at the life and, and career of Dean Jones. So uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, that's the, the most recent episode in the feed from the previous weekend. So it, it's been it's been a pretty remarkably full week. We've had uh, the series between the Australian women's team and the New Zealand women starting here in Brisbane where I am, which I've been at and watching. We've had England playing the West Indies in the women's series over in England, which Adam's been keeping a close eye on. Uh, he's been at Lords commentating the Bob Willis Trophy, which is the England first class uh, competition final for this year. And all of this has been going on. So, And we'll, have, we'll get into all of the cricket um, in the second half of the show today, plus some stuff from the IPL. The other thing that's been going on this week is that Adam has been buying the Batmobile, the, the the vehicle driven around by Angry Anderson in the 1991 grand final. An important part of Adam's life has been trying to buy really stupid shit off eBay. Um, and this is, you know, this has been documented before in in uh, the, the ABC documentary that interviewed the two of us. I, I told the story of really getting to know Adam, I guess, by the way that he was trying to buy a pair of Mark Wars One Day International trousers off eBay late one night when we should have been working and that's where his focus was. <laughs> so this is something that's quite consistent. Probably when you bought the radio rights to the Pakistan series in the UAE, it might have ranked up there as your most impulsive and ridiculous purchase. But I reckon it's been surpassed now because, <laughs> you know, you said a week ago, oh, this is on eBay, I'm going to get it. And I thought, I know you'll try, but you did it. You, you've I, actually, I, it's, it's, you now own it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and not just me. It should be said it was very much a team effort. It's funny you mentioned the Mark Wars pants thing. I did it, I mean, to use the old Dennis Pagan language from the 90s, I was very much on Media Street yesterday as everyone wanted to hear the story. And one of the interviews I did, that came up. And they go, oh, didn't you buy Mark Wall's trousers? And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> I nearly did. Uh, but that's I a, failed that's, to buy Mark Wall's trousers. I failed to, uh, which spurred <laughs> me on. And I, I suppose the Batmobile, uh, the origins are, are similar. In, the, in 2006, I think it was, maybe 2007, this did bob up on eBay. I remember it was... Uh, 
sort of we found out about it when I, by we I mean the friends of mine I go to the footy with who stand in M10 with me and we've been standing together at the footy for well forever really and we spotted it up and were going to buy it and we stuffed up the auction and you know we were young and didn't really know what we were doing and it went elsewhere and I always regretted that and lamented that I wasn't on the ball and said that if it ever came up again I'd be all over it and lo and behold when it went up last Sunday I received a torrent of uh, screenshots from people letting me know that it was there who'd heard me tell this story from 2007 over the years lamenting that I didn't buy it when I should have and then I went dark because it was it's probably my fault that the auction went so nuts on uh, Sunday, Monday last week, I put up a tweet which went viral and got picked up by the Herald Sun and one thing led to another. So, and all the TV networks uh, were out there interviewing the owner, which meant that there were like a hundred bids in the first 24 to 48 hours, something like that. My bid got overtaken comfortably and I realised that the only way this was going to happen uh, was if I brought together a consortium of sorts uh, mm. and over the course of the next five days, quietly, offline, uh, I pulled this together between my mates, the same mates I, as I say, have gone to the footy with forever and, you know, I've spent God knows how many hours talking shit on the internet about Hawthorne with over in, in the Hawke headquarters days when that was a thriving forum, which it still is, but I, I'm not so involved these days. And combine that with... Um, the support of Mark Hawthorne, who used to be the managing editor of The Age and has his finger in a number of different pies around Melbourne, a very well-connected dude. And one thing led to another, and, and, and he was able to bring in a, a stack of people uh, to the operation. I had a bunch of people who were dead keen to chip in, and then we just sort of chanced our hand and thought, we've got this bucket of money. We know when the auction ends, we'll put that as our highest bid, and we'll see how it plays out. And in the end, we got in on our one bid. We bid with 45 minutes to go, and so goes the story i had to go upstairs and do my next commentary stint and that stint was running out just when the auction was running out so my phone mm. was exploding while i'm trying to call the cricket so i knew we were okay and i had a backup plan mark was going to bid for me if we needed an extra little slither of money at the last minute but we won and i walked off air knowing that we'd gotten over the line and, and that was you that. walked and off it, air walking on air walking on air yeah and it's it's i mean there's a few bits to this, Jeff. You understand footy culture uh, as I do, and yep. you know, and other people something- may be completely bewildered yeah. by this, but because basically we're saying that a a fairly mediocre rock singer who I think went on to become a professional racist in the yep. '90s got driven around or drove around this pretty ordinary vehicle where they'd basically taken the the body of a car and then fitted some shiny panels on it. It looked nothing like the actual Batmobile from the movies. It was very, very much <laughs> as sort of not even a half-assed, a kind of quarter-assed version, but it had some big fins on it that were reminiscent of bats, and so people then said, oh, it was the Batmobile, and they just called it that. But it's got these, like, red velvet bench seats in it, which I suppose remind us of the, the vinyl and velour couches of White Line Wireless. Mm. Um, there, mm. there's, there's something quite soothing about that red velour when you see it. And it's open-topped, and, you know, you could you could drive it around looking both mediocre and resplendent. It's kind of like, it's, it's gloriously shit, is what it is. Well, I um, think it's a few, yeah, so there's the glorious shitness of it, no, no question, although I may not quite sign up to that. I think it is quite an impressive car. It, it's 7.4 metres long, would you believe? It's fucking mm. huge. So we're in the process of working out where it's going to live in the short term before hopefully giving it over to the National Sports Museum uh, or, or somewhere equivalent so it can be displayed because people love having their photo taken in it. I know when it was on display at the MCG in 2015 in grand final week, people were all 
over that. But yeah, the angry Anderson singing Bound for Glory is as well known, I think, as the Batmobile and Robert DeCostella sitting in the car with him beforehand. With nothing to do. Like Robert DeCostella's just sitting there really awkwardly being like, I'm just going (laughs) to smile and nod along while the man in the leather jacket sings. Well, the thing with Deke was he, he read out this call to arms about Sydney and the Olympic bid ahead of 1993. The decision was being made in 93 as to whether Sydney would have the Olympics in 2000. But Melbourne had missed out about 12 months earlier in October 1990, we, Melbourne had fallen just short. So there was a degree of antipathy between you know, Melbourne and the Olympic movement at that time. And you can hear a few boos in the background about Sydney when mm-hmm. talking about it, but also that they were off to Barcelona the following year. So there were a number of athletes who were participating in that upcoming Olympic Games, but former greats of sport. I mean, just thinking sort of like Yobes on Dierke, everyone remembers him sitting next to Lisa Martin, pissing himself laughing. You know, Jimmy Steins in his Melbourne jumper. I don't really remember. Oh, no, he won the Brownlow. That's why Jimmy was in the back of a car. Alan Borders there with Jeff Marsh wearing Hawthorne and West Coast scarves, fighting Harada and Lionel Rose because they were um, they were out promoting a film at the time. But the great fighting Harada and the even greater, arguably Lionel Rose, you know, two absolute giants of their sport. Ian Baker Finch, who just won the British Open, however many months before, uh, the awesome foursome, of course, who went on a couple of them, uh, who went on to win the uh, win Olympic gold in Barcelona in the middle of the following year, also went on to voice the Golden Valley Fruits advertisements, which I think was arguably their greater cult. Golden Valley, Valley Gold. The taste will drive you wild. (laughs) The stuff that remains in your head. But anyway, there's all that going on. It's a cultural icon. I grew up five minutes down the road from VFL Park. Hawthorne win the grand final. They don't win again for 17 years. So when we ended up winning the grand final in 2008, our sort of song that we were singing in the lead up was Bound for Glory because of the link back to 91. And we're little boys at the time. And you watch it on. My mum remembers, you know, I spoke to my mum before and she was saying that watching my brother. Ben and I watching the 91 grand final over and over and over again every day before school, knowing all the commentary from Kimetti and McAvaney, knowing all the ads by heart, running around the house like maniacs singing Bound for Glory. I mean, it's a special part of our childhood. So there's the Hawthorne bit, there's the footy culture bit, there's the history bit, there's the personal bit. And I just thought that's good enough. And enough people shared that view that we were able to push ahead and get it. So yeah, we're, we're looking at options at the moment as to how we might be able to help fundraising for footy clubs who have struggled through over this year where it might be housed as I say longer term for people to be able to get their photo taken in it and so on and make sure that it's kept up and restored and uh, you know in perpetuity really that it's kept in good nick and we retain it rather than sitting in a garage somewhere or worse still getting thrown in a tip. So are you going to be able to just cut laps in it at some point? <laughs> well the, the short answer is no and I don't think one could. The front of the car is three metres long from where it's an old Valiant underneath I should add. Aren't we all an old Valiant underneath yes. <laughs> in some ways. But it's, it's got a three-metre frontage, which means that, as it's been explained to me, it's like driving a Formula One car in terms of the way you're positioned in it compared to what mm. sits in front of you. So it'll be challenging to drive. Vic Roads have historically said they won't register it. Aren't there special vehicle dispensations, like yeah. you know, things like floats and so on that, that do allow them to be driven on roads in certain conditions? Well, that's why we're, you know, so the Grand Final Parade uh, is perhaps an obvious place where it might get used in the future. Next mm-hmm. year, will be 30 years it's the 91 grand final so I suppose it would make sense if the AFL uh, wanted to use it then we wouldn't be against that 
I mean, I'm speaking on behalf of 33 people here, but the expectation from our discussions in the lead up to buying it was that we'd be open to those kind of presentations. And of course, we want to get it out ourselves at some point to, you know, have a bit of fun with it too, but not on the road as such, because in all likelihood, Vic Roads will will say no to that. (laughs) Well, you you just have to take it to Mount Panorama or something and just just really give it a workout around the curves, see if you can get through the chicanes. Well, look, I, I mean, as far as just one wonderfully stupid and funny things to do go i think that's that's right up there i think um, i think this is this is now it's in your pool room of achievements and, and i think for this reason i'm going to award the Seabus super performer this week to adam <laughs> collins for having this ridiculous idea and not only having it but following it through i'd like to note that Seabus provides advice and products which allows members to convert retirement savings into a regular and flexible income in retirement and that's exactly what you have done that's what adam. i'm doing a prudent investment in your future in buying the angry anderson batmobile uh, it's important to note that uh, past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance when you try to drive the Batmobile around and uh, you know but you can go to cbussuper.com.au if you want to check out their superannuation offerings. What we'll do in the show notes if you're listening outside of Australia indeed maybe even outside of Melbourne and you're not quite sure what we're talking about we will link through to the video from the 91 grand final and you can make your own mind up whether I'm an absolute maniac which well there's probably some truth to that anyway or whether I've made a prudent decision let's hope it's the latter but even if I haven't and even if this is a bit of a a money pit over the years I think we've done the right thing for the right reasons I hope so you know no complaints (laughs) now you spent your week really it was a five-day game at the Bob Willis Trophy final which was the the new first class competition that they engineered in England this year given that everything had to be shortened so much you spent a lot of time watching Rain uh, and you spent a lot of time watching Alistair Cookbat, which I might argue would be equally amusing, entertaining. But there was cricket that happened over that five days and uh, there was a fair bit of running around up and downstairs and freezing your ass off uh, commentating outside because you weren't allowed <laughs> inside because of COVID and all the rest of it. So um, give us a snapshot of the, the week that was. Yeah, well... First of all, calling from the top of the pavilion at Lords is a privilege, but you are drawn to the media centre on the other side of the ground where we would have otherwise been behind glass. But still, no one has called cricket from the pavilion since 1999 when the the media centre went up at the nursery end. So that that in itself was a, a rare privilege and joy over the blast games that we did, but especially this final over those five days. And yeah, Alistair Cook, we drew that contrast on the Dean Jones episode, didn't we? That some players you respect for the volume of runs they make and others for the way they do it. Well, Cook managed to combine the two this week. He made 172, but as Phil Walker pointed out in his lovely piece on the Wisdom website, he strummed it. He batted beautifully. He struck 26 boundaries. The majority of them were these lavish cover drives. It's as though... I mean, obviously Cook's not going to play for England again. No one's suggesting that. I mean, I saw James Taylor, the England selector, down the bottom of the pavilion and had a laugh with him about this this point. And obviously the, the, the natural question to ask Cook at the moment is, will you play for England again, which he always knocks on the head. But now that he's two years out of international fair and he hasn't had to play cricket day in, day out, month in, month out, more to the point, as an international captain, he's just liberated. He bets... So fluently, or at least he did in this in this match, which was a decider at Lords. They needed three hundred and two to take first innings points, which was going to determine who who would win the game if they didn't get a, an outright result. And due to that rain earlier in the game, that was fairly important. And he 
made 172 of those. They ended up having their compulsory closure, which was the 120 over market, about 337, if I recall correctly. So Cook makes half of the runs that Essex made in the first dig and, yeah, did it superbly. So by the time uh, they, uh, you know, went to work with the ball in the second dig, there were some impressive performances by the Somerset youngsters. And you've got to feel for Somerset. They have been runners-up in the county championship six times between 2001 and 2019, having never won it. One of only three counties of the 18 never to have won the championship. Somerset have been so close since 2001 and, uh, and, and have been second in three of the last four seasons to sort of punctuate that point. And first edition of the Bob Willis Trophy, they're runners-up again. Uh, but they've got plenty to work with, a lot of home-grain players. Tom Lamanby, if you haven't heard about this young fella yet, I suspect you're going to hear a lot about him very soon. He's made three centuries in the season, made 116 opening in the, in the second innings, and that was another wonderful innings uh, in tough circumstances in the freezing cold and he's tall he looks the part high in the crease left hander I'd be surprised if he doesn't get fast tracked into you know the England Lions and ultimately the England team uh, sooner rather than later and a young fellow called Ed Byram who comes from Zimbabwe originally but he made his first big hundred for Somerset in the first innings as well another left hander so they have got plenty to work with there in, in future seasons, but Essex just too big, too strong, too good. Players, Jeff, that you would know well, Ryan Tendiscata batted for three hours on the final afternoon to make sure that Essex got the draw and thus got the trophy. I mean, Cook we already mentioned, but Tom Westley, an, an excellent half-century batting with Cook in the first dig. In terms of the bowlers, Simon Harmer, so reliable, picked up, I think, 38 wickets for the season, considering they only played six matches. That's, that's quite some effort. Jamie Porter, who has deserved international selection at some stage he's not been able to achieve that but picked up four wickets in the second dig which was really important Sam Cook the the little chef as they call him who bagged five in the first innings with the ball for Essex as well which was important given they needed to kind of curtail Somerset scoring after they were going quite nicely on the second day so across the board a a thoroughly entertaining game a great format I'm not sure if again if you've been following too much of this but the three group format looks like it will be how county cricket is played next year and forever. So they'll have a final like the Shield final, but the way they'll get there is by having three groups based on the finishing positions from the previous year. So in 2021, they'll use 2019, but they'll sort the groups out that way so they're reasonably fair, three groups of six, and then they'll compete to get into the top group after playing home and away. A little bit complicated, but the long story short is that the group structure they like, how it's worked, and it's a step forward as far as making sure that you don't have teams who are stuck in Division 2, you know, sort of year after year with no real prospect of going up. It gives them a chance of winning it each year uh, and it also means that there'll be some variety. You know, groups will rotate each year based on their finishing position. So out of a, a, a spiriting um, domestic season over here where so much cricket was lost, uh, they ended up stumbling upon a, a pretty good formula and I think that Lord's final will be here to stay. It's interesting when you're talking about teams that are stuck in the bottom division and can't get up because that was Essex, you know, when mm. when I first visited there and we went out there in 2015 for the tour game that they played against Australia and they were admittedly resting their best probably 20 or 22 bowlers because they had <laughs> they had middle order New Zealand bat Jesse Ryder opening the bowling at about 42 k's an hour bowling um, little out swingers and they'd They'd uh, produced a road and asked the Australians to bat just so they could make sure they got four days in and got the gate receipts. And you know, it didn't. It, it felt yeah. like 
it was a long time since glory days where they'd, they'd made a lot of finals in the 80s and so on. But they they won last year. They won the, the county champs and the T20 comp last year. They've got, of course, the greatest Dutchman of all time, Ryan Tenderskata, being central in, in in those feats. They've got that benefit of having Cook come back, having retired relatively young from England. But, you know, they've, they've become a, a juggernaut side in the last couple of years. Yeah, that's a really good observation. I mean, they used to prepare green tops in the second division to enable Jesse Ryder to take loads of wickets. That's not the behaviour of a club that that is going to go on and, and, and make serious gains. But once getting out of Division 2 and into the top flight in 2017, um, they go on and win the comp then with a, a very much a homegrown team. I think I was reading that 10 of the 13 players in this Essex squad, it might have been seven of the 11 that played, something like that, were born in the same hospital. So, you know, they, they, they don't... I mean, obviously, Harmer is a Colpac registration and will go on to be an overseas player next year when they increase that from one to two and they get rid of Colpacs because of Brexit, and which Izzy Westbury discussed on, a, on an episode of The Final Word a few months ago. And Tender Scarlett, yes, he, he might have been a, a prolific international player for Holland, but he's been with Essex since 2003. So he's effectively a, a homegrown product as well, given how long he's been in the system. So it's to their immense credit that they've been able to morph into this incredible side, both in county championship. They didn't do so well in the, in the blast this year, but over time, I mean, they did the double last year when we got Derek Pringle on to talk about that success. And they very much earned that tag as the most formidable and most powerful county in the country. I think it's time for a little game. Not the game you might be expecting, but the game that you might second most be expecting. This is a game we haven't played in a few weeks, but it's called Happy Birthday, Sachin. Sachin. It's your birthday. Happy birthday. Sachin. Sachin. It's your birthday. Happy birthday. Sachin. Take it away, Jeff. All right. Happy birthday, Sachin, is the game where we find out who Sachin Tendulkar has been wishing happy birthday to in the previous week or sometimes the previous few weeks. Uh, And it's been a little while since we checked in and Sachin has been busy. There is nothing Sachin Tendulkar likes more than wishing somebody happy birthday on the internet as long as they're suitably famous and preferably uh, a former or current international cricketer. So it's been quite a busy birthday patch for Sachin. The most notable, of course, is is a confluence of two of our interests here on The Final Word. Adam, you'll be pleased to know that Ravichandran Ashwin, the patron saint of The Final Word, has been wished happy birthday by Sachin on the internet, thus bringing two of our, our interests perfectly together. Oh, look, passion's colliding. Can't ask for anything more than that. I gather... Ashwin's been busy on YouTube in recent days again. I feel like it's a YouTube channel we need to subscribe to and fanboy in order to give ourselves any chance of getting him on the final word during this IPL campaign, which we still really want to do. But I'm glad that Sachin's got him front and centre. Fair play. Mm. Uh, so, joining Ashwin in Sachin's good wishes over the, the last couple of weeks, Bishan Beatty, the, uh, the Indian spinner from the 1970s, good to see. Not forgotten, uh, still still there in the heart of Sachin. Uh, Chris Gale got a gong, of course, because if you're, you know, uh, super famous in the T20 world, Sachin wants you around. Uh, ditto Rashid Khan. <laughs> Maybe the first Afghanistan player to get a happy birthday, Sachin. Certainly the first since I've been keeping tabs. Haven't seen Mohammed Nabi pop up. Haven't seen Mujib Rahman pop up on the happy birthday, Sachin feed. Akash Chopra former Indian opening batsman and now commentator, got a happy birthday. Surya Kumar Yadav, who's less famous but 
has played for the Mumbai Indians for quite some time and Sachin has a strong Mumbai Indians IPL connection. So so all of those players got in there. And then there was a, a good spread of Sachin's other interests. So Sachin particularly likes film actors and directors who are famous in India. So Ayushman Kurana got a gong, an actor and television host. Sachin also likes... Uh, older singers who who capture something of the spirit of the land. Uh, so Asha Bosley got a gong there, and and Sachin also likes right wing politicians. So Prime Minister <laughs> Modi, of course, got a big gong from Sachin on the happy birthday list because, of course, uh, Modi's day would not have been complete without SRT getting involved. So so quite a lot of birthday action there. Uh, also the marking of a 30-year anniversary of Sachin's relationship with a photographer named Atul, no last name given, who has been photographing him since 1990, apparently. Good, good to recognise your photographers. I wonder if he just kind of realised that it was the year. He goes, oh, there's a photo from 1990 or whether it corresponds mm. with a specific date. I mean, did he do any research? I know certainly when I think of an album that may have been 10 or 20 years ago, I'll go on Wikipedia, the album, and work out when it was released because I don't want to just get on there and say, you know, the year. I mean, it could be any time yeah. in the 12-month cycle to do that. You want mm. to get your social media post spot mm. on. You want to make sure that when you credit it being 10 years since Robin released Body Talk, that it is mm. 10 years since Robin released Body Talk in, to in the 2010. Day. Albeit yep. a complicated album to say when it did, because of course there's three different parts of it. But let's not dwell right. on the detail. My point is, is that I hope that wasn't just some brain fart from Sachin. Uh, I hope mm. he actually put some bloody work in. Well, I, I would be confident it would be in the spreadsheet. We know that he obviously has a, a massive spreadsheet of birthdays and I'd hope that uh, his first photography date with Atul was in there as well. When you're trying to work out the day that something is released, do you take into account the time zone of the country that it was in? Because, you know, mm. if it were released um, you know, if it were released on a certain date in say the USA, seventeen hours behind Australia and you commemorated it on that day, it would actually be the previous day in, in America and thus wouldn't be the correct date. Well what it does do is it buys you some extra time if you forget to do it. Mm. I mean it's like when as you would have had a number of times as well, Jeff, when yep. your birthday is in a later time zone than Australia, it kind of extends for 30-something hours as far as yeah, yeah. people wishing you well and, of course, the custom of Facebook, and although mm. far less these days, thankfully. But, yeah, I, I think that, that's how I'd see it. It makes the day longer rather than, rather than um, you know, narrowing your window. Yeah. There's nothing that crushes uh, any of... of the joy out of human existence more than getting a, a, you know, I don't know if it happens anymore, but when you used to get a post on your Facebook wall from, say, someone you went to secondary school with and hadn't spoken to since year eight, posting on, on your Facebook wall and posting like HB exclamation mark, you know, and yeah. I thought it, it, it actually takes less effort. It's actually even more shit to post three characters than it would be to post nothing at all. Um, but yeah, yeah that's, I, I, that's HB exclamation mark, that, that, that's a certain genre, isn't it? That, that's when mm. you see whose birthday it is that day and you systematically mm. go through. It's essentially what Sachin is doing, but for mere mortals. He, right. Although, it must be said, he usually will dig out a photo of it's a celebrity, but that spreadsheet... Oh, always a photo. It, it, it's the same... It's from the same spirit. It's from the same... Mm. 
place. I mean, I, you know, if someone does that on, on my wall, which I'm sure it happens each year, I will spend half an hour reading about their life though. I will mm. click on their profile and I will mm-hmm. scroll back to 2007 and see every profile picture they've, they've put on and I will um, <laughs> then Google them, see if they're on Twitter. That's just the way it goes. If you're going to sure. post the HB exclamation mark, I'm going to go on a deep dive about you and, mm. and then ultimately not reply. Right. And it, because maybe it means happy Batmobile. You never know. Uh, <laughs> the last little notes for Sachin here is that I was glad to see Sachin uh, recognise World Tourism Day. Frankly, I think Sachin has been remiss in the past in not recognising World Tourism Day. I don't think he's talked about much, World Tourism enough. How much money? How much? Oh, imagine the sort of... Imagine the sort of coin that someone like Sachin would be getting from an organisation like that for a tweet like that. Well, oh. world, I don't, I don't know if World Tourism Day is is a particularly by one organisation. Maybe it's just generally all about tourism. But anyway, the 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 photograph was Sachin lying in a hammock, saying that he was having a nice holiday at home. Um, so nice work if you can get it. And, and of course, there was a, a farewell to Dino from Sachin, a good form there, and and another farewell to SP Balasubramaniam, who was a famous and well regarded Indian singer. So those were the two farewells among the work that Sachin did on the internet this week. Thank you, Sachin, for your social media service. Uh, This has been Happy Birthday, Sachin. And and Jeff, while we're going through segments that people know and sometimes indeed love, we might have a little bit of time for some... Nerd Pledge! Yes, very quickly, let's just do a couple of little cheeky ones, little Nerd Pledges. Nerd Pledge is the game that we play with people on our patron page who support the show by sending us a number of dollars and cents that relates to a cricketing number and we have to guess what the cricket connection is. They keep the show going. We get to spend a lot of time nerding around in stats databases. Everybody is a winner. The first of our numbers today comes in from Jeffrey Gabriel, and that number is $3.22. If you turned your cricket mind to this, Adam Collins, what might 322 suggest? Well, look, I didn't dive as deep on this as I may have, uh, because I ended up landing on a number uh, and a person which I thought warranted a story to be told straight away. So I have a process I go through when numbers come in, um, and 322 hit gold almost on the first search, which, which is the 322nd uh, Australian test player, was Greg Matthews. Now, you know, ordinarily that might rate a passing mention. Yeah, sure, Greg Matthews, interesting guy, interesting cat, as he might say. But Someone, someone, someone you dream about a lot. Someone I, I've had a recurring dream about, uh, which I had the chance to weirdly mentioned on Tailenders the other day, another podcast that we <laughs> cherish. But anyway, let's not dwell too much on my dream. Let, let's deal with Greg Matthews as a batsman. Primarily an off-spin bowler for those who well, didn't watch a lot of Greg well, Matthews in yeah. the 80s. That's what he was there for. Arguably. I mean, well, it depends how you interpret Matthews. I mean, Matthews's career, um, in the end, he had a, a, a far more impressive record with the bat than he did with the ball. He played 33 test matches. And there's a lovely link back to Dean Jones, of course. Dino always would say that the man of the match in the tie test should have been Greg Matthews. It ended up being a joint award handed to... It was Capel Dev and Dino, wasn't it? They got the joint man of the match. And he always said that the reason why Australia were in a position to tie that test match was that Matthews took 10 wickets. 
five in each innings, including, of course, the, the final scalp in the last over of that incredible test match. But yes, 33 test matches across a, a 10-year period where he only took 61 wickets. So, you know, not even two wickets a match, an average of 48. So when you consider that he picked up a 10-wicket match at Madras, he's picked up in 32 other test matches, 51 wickets. Not that good going, I think we can all agree. But with the bat, Four tonnes in 33 matches, the better part of 2,000 runs, at an average of 41 is very, very good indeed. And the reason that's always stood out to me was because I remember my dad went to a conference or something like that a long, long time ago when I was a kid. It would have been around 2,000, let's say. And he excitedly came back to to show me a presentation that had been put to him in this about statistical deviation. And he, he calculated this chap that Greg Matthews across his career had the smallest standard deviation of any test player in the history of the game who'd, who'd reached a certain threshold. It might have been, say, averaging 30 or something like that. So and you look back through Matthews's career, I mean, sure, yes, there's the four centuries, there's um, one against uh, New Zealand and there's one against India in his first couple of years, another against England in 1986, and he makes a fourth against, was it South Africa? No, England in, in, um, in the Sydney Test match of 1991. But the grouping of his scores, he was ridiculous ridiculously consistent around uh, having the scores hovered around that 41 mark. So I thought for our nerds, they might enjoy that the player with the best statistical deviation as far as consistency is concerned is Greg Mo Matthews. So take with that what you will, uh, Jeff. But I, I, I was thinking during the week, uh, we both had this nagging feeling that we may have received a tweet, not necessarily about this specifically, but in this general flavour of nerdum, uh, that is mm. that someone else has done something like this in cricket, and I can't for the life of me put my finger on it, and nor can you. No, it's out there somewhere, and it was to do with a player being very consistent or, or returning a result very consistently. So if that was you, if you sent us that message uh, and we can't find it right at the moment of recording, let us know. Drop us a line on one of the, the platforms on which you can do that. Where I went with 322, Adam, it relates more to the name of the pledger. And that name, as I mentioned earlier, is Geoffrey Gabriel. Geoffrey with a J. Gabriel in the conventional sense, because that would be weird if it were with a J. Geoffrey Gabriel. I'd rather his name was spelt Geoffrey Gabriel. Gabriel. Geoffrey uh, Geoffrey Gabriel. <laughs> uh, no, that, I, I don't think that's it. But nonetheless, I thought Geoffrey with a J always makes me think foremost of Geoffrey Dujon the West Indies wicketkeeper. And Gabriel makes me think of Shannon Gabriel, the West Indies fast bowler. Mm. And so I thought, here is someone whose name is made up of two great West Indies cricketers. Therefore, there needs to be a West Indies link. Now, 322 was the target that the West Indies had to chase at Headingley, at Leeds in 2017, when Shy Hope made twin centuries after doing very little with the bat in his career to that point, one of the most remarkable turnaround performances, and they produced one of the great run chases. There are very few test run chases of over 300 runs, and the West Indies were able to put that together in a series where they were very overmatched uh, by England. They were struggling to be up to the standard, but they managed to pull out that win by chasing 322. And so I thought for that link, for Jeffrey Gabriel, that's where I'd like to go. That's nice, Jeff. Yeah, Shy Hope, who did really nothing before and has really done nothing after. In test cricket, that is. It's uh, uh, the one-day form of the game where he's been far more imposing. But he'll always have those twin tons. And as a consequence, he'll always have that gong as one of the wisdom cricketers of the year for 2018, which he received 
on the back of what he did at Headingley the previous summer. So that works really well for me. That's 322. Thanks ever so much to Jeffrey Gabriel. Our next number is a double header. It is $5.48. It comes from Ben Woolgar and someone who's just got another gong, Mick Flurry. Mick Flurry was only on the show a couple of weeks ago, but Mick Flurry, <laughs> by virtue of picking the same number as Ben, has got ahead of the queue to get in with this dual number. That's the only way you can jump the queue in Nerd Pledge is to double up your number with someone who happens to be ahead of you. You can't know that it's happened, uh, but it's just pure luck and Mick Flurry has landed straight up on number eight. So $5.48 is the number. And when I thought $5.48, I thought there is a number we discussed only a few weeks ago, which was uh, $6.14, which we interpreted as six for 14, the bowling figures of a swing bowler named Gary Gilmore in the very first World Cup. He took that six for 14 in the World Cup semi-final to get Australia into the finals. What he did in the final was back it up by taking five for 48 which would match up with 548 as sent by Ben and Mick. Now, that 548, that 5 for 48 that he took was not just any 5 for 48 because he knocked over Elvin Kellacharan, Clive Lloyd, Rowan Canai, Viv Richards and Derek Murray. <laughs> and as far as fifers go, that has got to be one of the most quality five-wicket hauls in the history of the game. Uh, that was in one of the very early one-day internationals. Gary Gilmore only played five or six ODIs, I think. But they were around that first World Cup in 75 where he had a big influence, although Australia didn't manage to chase down the West Indies score in that game and, and the West Indies won the first final. And three players of that five who had a big role in that World Cup. I mean, Clive Lloyd, of course, makes a century before he's picked up by Gary Gilmore. Viv Richards, who you know, executes the four runouts and uh, is so important in the end as Australia bowled. And Derek Murray, who at the very, very end uh, throws the stumps down to make sure that uh, that Lily and Thompson partnership is broken and the pitch invasion that ensues and that sort of wonderful moment at about quarter to eight that night, one of the greatest one-day internationals ever contested. And the fact that it just happened to be the final of the first World Cup was fitting and, and did an awful lot for promoting uh, the 50-over, well, what was then the 60-over form of the game. That's right. Uh, now, 548, have you got any, any counters for that? Because no, well, We've got two here, so I, I reckon yeah. Mick, I reckon Mick gets the um, the Gary Gilmore. What might Ben go for? Well, uh, <laughs> Graham Hick was the five hundred and forty eighth man to play for England. <laughs> Graham Hick is a figure that sends people one of two ways. I reckon historically, people love him for what he what he was, and obviously made so many so many runs for Worcestershire, and indeed a fair few for England as well along the way. But often people can focus too much, I think, on the runs that he didn't make for England rather than. Uh, celebrating the player that he was. He sometimes gets parodied for how often he was dropped and, and all the rest, but that was him, 548. But I, I think Tim Bresnan. Tim Bresnan was the only man, or is the only man so far in, in international cricket, who picked up a 5 for 48 both in a test match and in a one-day international. And thinking uh, in recent times about that 10-11 England team who came out to Australia and won, won the Ashes, well, just a few moments ago, uh, observing that uh, that Robin's body talk was released in, in 2010. Well, it's nearly 10 years exactly since that 
series between England and Australia, where Bresnan, of course, comes in on Boxing Day, takes wickets there. I think he takes five in the second dig at Melbourne. That might be the five for 48, actually. Anyway, uh, five for 48 uh, uh, is the test and one-day number we're looking at here. But the information is that there is a WhatsApp group at the moment with all the players from the 10-11 series. I asked Steve Finn about it on commentary during the week about whether they were planning some sort of Zoom reunion or maybe some sort of socially distanced gathering. And he said that both might be happening. And at the moment, it's been just a WhatsApp group. And I sort of asked a relatively pointed question. Are all the members of the 10-11 side on that group, Finney? All members of the side? All of them? Is KP on the what? Yes, KP is in in the WhatsApp group. So I'm not sure whether he's an active member of it, but it Mm. exists uh, and there is some planning going into doing something for that side who of course won 3-1 in Australia in in 10-11 and and won the Ashes in Australia for the first time since 86-87 so uh, something that's worth keeping an eye on uh, as we surely will see news reports and so on in the months to come he is betting that he has the notifications on mute (laughs) he's like (laughs) ignore group yes Um, we're not really going to take a break because normally at this point we might do a you know we might have a little uh, sponsor break but what we're actually doing today is having a short interview with a a very nice lunatic who is going to climb a mountain wearing a diving suit and why why is he going to do this well you'll you'll have to stay tuned to find out but i think it's worth finding out because it, it's a pretty good story so uh, this involves the lord taverners you can uh, have a listen to lloyd catching up with us and then we'll talk about the cricket that's happened over the last week hi i'm dave warner and you're listening to the final word Jeff, this is the point in the show when we tell everyone about the Lord's Taverners, but we're going to do it with a twist today. We're going to talk about a champion of fundraising, a man who for <laughs> uh, over three decades and in across 50 events has put his body through all sorts to raise money for a number of organisations at the moment, principally for Lord's Taverners. Welcome, Lloyd Scott, to The Final Word. Good evening, gents. You're an amazing man, uh, going back and reading a little bit about what you've done over the years, including running the London Marathon in a deep-sea diving suit. You've gone across Australia in a penny farthing. You've completed an underwater marathon. You've walked from Land's End to John O'Groats dressed as T-Rex. You've raised more than £5 million for charity and this week setting off at the end of this week you're doing another special event all for lord's taverners and it's going to be the last ever charity work you do across three decades well it'll be the, it'll be the last one that i organize for for sure um I have, I have put a little kind of caveat in there um listen if somebody asks me to to get involved with an event um and it's going to raise a lot of money for kids and things i would be pretty you know hard-hearted to turn it down but in terms of um, <laughs> in terms of events that i'm organizing yeah this is this is going to be it does that depend lloyd on how tempting the offer is in terms of how good their idea is you know if they say we're going to get you on the international space station and you're going to run <laughs> a, a six-month non-stop rave party or something up there you know that that might be what wins you over yeah that might that, that, that might be a case um somebody did have a suggestion for me to do a, a wing walk and um, I said, oh, I've already looked at that. I said, um, I'm actually too heavy to go on one of these, like, uh, fire planes. <laughs> but, oh, no, 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 no. We wanted, to, we wanted to do it on the top of a jumbo jet. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I did pass on that one. The thought of going down a runway at 200 miles an hour on the straps. And the, yeah, yeah. I gave that one a little bit of a wide berth. 
If this ends up being your final major charity event, what a walk it's going to be. You're taking on the Three Peaks Challenge to summit each of the highest peaks in the UK. So Ben Nevis in Scotland, Scarfell Pike in England, and Wales, of course, at Snowdonia. And you're going to do that. You're going to dust off the old deep sea diving suit from that marathon. It's going to weigh 130 pounds, and you're going to lug that up the Three Peaks starting at the end of this week. Yeah, it's... um yeah, I think it's a suitable uh, finale for me to go out on. Certainly, the, the support that I've had from the um, from the Taverners, I mean, uh, um, I think that's that's going to help decide to be my last one because they've been phenomenal with the the amount of um, assistance that they've that they've given me. You know, they've they've provided a, a mountain guide for each of the peaks. We've got support teams from them as well as my family, so we're COVID compliant. Um, we've had to bear that in mind as well. So um, it's going to be pretty. It's going to be pretty hard to top, to be honest. And, and the fact is, I actually haven't been uh, up any of the three peaks, which again makes it a little bit special because it's something I haven't experienced before, you know, with or without a diving suit. Can I ask you, Lloyd, why are you in possession of a diving suit? Firstly, and secondly, why have you decided to take it on various of your adventures? Uh, yeah, I mean, prior, to, I mean, I did the marathon uh, in two thousand two. So it's like. 18 years ago. Uh, prior to that, I'd done expeditions to the South Pole, the North Pole, did a marathon uh, up Mount Everest, run through the Sahara, through Death Valley. So I'd always had a you know, fairly extreme way of thinking, and, and I just applied it really to um, uh, to the London Marathon. I, I saw the rhinos go around uh, every, every year, and, and they're fantastic. And I just thought, you know, what's the worst possible costume that somebody could actually come up with to try and complete the course? So the answer was the was the diving suit. And um, the rest, they say, is, um, yeah. Um, so, so that's that's actually where the idea uh, came from. But where did you track one down? I mean, they're, they're not exactly a dime a dozen. No, they're not. They're not. Um, there was a guy actually down in uh, Exmouth that had a, an enormous uh, collection of, of, of this diving um, equipment. And all of these things normally start off with one you know, fairly unusual phone call. But he wasn't phased <laughs> at all by me asking that I wanted a, a diving suit to do the marathon in. And in actual fact, the suit and the helmet that he gave me, he said, oh, you know, this one's actually quite a light one. And um, I thought, wow, I'm going to have this, you know, this incredible... Um, uh, Space age. It's going to look really heavy, but actually it's not. When I picked the helmet up, goodness, it was, uh, I thought, it's just not going to be able to do this. But, um, you know, we put it all together and, and um, there is a kind of feel and a rhythm that you get in with it too that, that, that you know, you can make it work. Lloyd, we're absolutely thrilled that we're able to sort of talk to you before you set off and we'll check in again once you finish it, of course. But when you boil it all down, the reason you are a charity walker and the reason you've done all of these events is because you've got uh, the interest of the charities at heart. And in the case of the Lord's Taverners, I mean, they've been going for over 70 years now. They've been severely impacted by COVID-19. They do such amazing work and that's something you've really invested so much of your life into. Yeah, it is. Uh, in actual fact, um, I was a very, very good friend of the very first president, uh, Sir John Mills. Bless him. He supported my expeditions to the South Pole because um, he was Captain Scott in, in the in the film. But yeah, I mean, I've been at Tavener for over 15 years. My dad took me to uh, Tavener's game, I think, when I was um, about 10 or 11. So I've always supported the charity. Love my cricket. So when I got the opportunity really to um, to to do this, it's probably a charity I'm 
actually very much closest with at the moment. And I suggested this idea, especially coming from all the uh, the difficulties that people have had, you know, being isolated, being alone, and not only that, but not being able to get out and, and participate in in their sport or, or normal sort of pastimes as well. You know, I saw some things on the television, and, and when the the opportunity arose, I thought, right, it's time now to to get out and, and do something and, and to make a contribution. The work that the Lord's Taverners are doing for people who aren't aware is is around isolation and loneliness at the moment. Those are the, the campaigns that they're running, particularly for kids who are living with disability and who are living with other areas of disadvantage. So the Lord's Taverners would normally have a lot of programs up and running which had to be cancelled through the, the COVID lockdowns and so they're looking for other ways to to reach out to particularly those kids and young people who need that extra bit of help at the moment. You would know a, a fair bit about loneliness from your charity works stemmed from your own ill health when you had leukaemia and I imagine that's a, a very lonely sort of battle to go through so that's that's something that you would have some sympathy with Lloyd. Yeah absolutely you know sometimes you have some real uh, difficult thoughts go go through your mind and people you know you don't upset family or friends with what you're thinking so you, you kind of keep all that inside and the other thing as well um, in terms of the programs that the taverners do is during that period that I had my bone marrow transplant and my kind of recovery you know I couldn't play sport it, it was um, I was fortunate enough to be a professional footballer previously um, I played cricket at a, a reasonable standard and sport had already been saying always have been you know really really integral part of my life so to actually have that taken away it was something that really kind of resonated that, that these kids you know the fact that they would have a, a life without sport and it's just doesn't doesn't worth thinking worth thinking about so you know I want them to be able to experience the excitement and the thrill and the joy uh, and, and the participation um, that comes with it because I do have first-hand experience what it's like to not have that and um, I think as well probably all you know especially in the UK but around the world um, other people have experienced that as, as well where they've not been able to go out and, and do the usual uh, sports and activities that, that they otherwise would. Lloyd before we let you go I mentioned off the top that you went across Australia on a penny farthing tell us more about that that feels like the sort of thing that might have taken a very long time and perhaps gone through a lot of I don't know tires is there a tire on those bikes I mean talk us through a lot of padded underwear it must have been uh, (laughs) must have been very tender on the date area it was um yeah it took in the end it took me 50 days to get across and yeah you're right there was more and more padding went on the uh on the saddle as, as we went over I ended up taking, I think we took three bikes, of which there was one that I got that was the, the, the best one to uh, to go on. And that was difficult. I mean, at the start of it, I, I didn't think I was going to get across. Um, you know, 10 or 12 days cycling, and I'd finish and get absolutely exhausted. And I could tell that my support team were thinking, he's not going to do this. And I know that because I was thinking exactly the same thing myself. But what I just did was to just get up the following morning and just cycle and... If you can do it, just concentrate on that. Don't think of like the, the 4,000 kilometers ahead. Just just do that. And um, so then you start putting days together, three or four days. Three or four days becomes a week, which becomes 10 days, which becomes two weeks. You get into a routine and, and we're on our way. And um, yeah, so it, it took a, a, as well as the physical side of things, it took a, a mental side of things. And of course, I wanted to watch Australia when I got to Sydney as well. 
<laughs> Fantastic. What a wonderful attitude to life that you have, Lloyd, and what a huge contribution you've made to so many charities over the years. It's brilliant that you're doing the Three Peaks Challenge starting this weekend for the Lord's Taverners, of course. We'll be supporting you all the way on the final word. The link in the show notes at lordstaverners.org will direct everyone to your donation page, which is on the Lord's Taverners website. Of course, we encourage everyone to take a look at that, follow your journey, and if you can spare a few bucks or a few quid, send it Lloyd's way. Lovely. Thank you. Hi, I'm Natalie Jemanis, and you listen to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. There's been cricket aplenty over the last week, which there hasn't been for most of the previous few months. Uh, it's been an interesting time while Adam's been doing the commentary on the Bob Willis, as we talked about. I've been doing ABC commentary on the Australian New Zealand Women's Series. Then I've been doing live blogs for the Guardian on the England series while Adam's been doing the live blogs for the Guardian on the Australia series, which means everybody's <laughs> been very confused at like why we're both up at four in the morning writing about games on the other side of the world, but that's the way it works. So you've watched every ball of the Australia New Zealand series, which, you know, given they're at four in the morning, your time, you, you might not have made that choice otherwise. But it's been as we expected, really, I suppose, is that Australia's been drawing away from the next bank of teams pretty strongly over the last... 12 to 24 months and and that's what we've seen so far where they've won the first two games comprehensively New Zealand captain Sophie Devine won both tosses tried batting first tried bowling first neither of them have worked it feels like for all that we've talked up New Zealand's women as being potential threats in global tournaments that it's really coming to nothing and it's not going to come to anything. They're just not good enough. And that's a shame because Sophie Devine certainly is good enough. Susie Bates has been good enough. I don't know whether um, she'll ever reach the heights that she did a few years ago. But there is a big gap between their superstars and, and the next level down. And, and it doesn't feel like there should be necessarily. But it was a joy to see Amy Southwaite playing again after giving birth in January. She made... 40-odd in the first of the two games and looked like she was some chance of uh, being influential in the final analysis before being stumped by Elisa Healy, a decision which I couldn't believe was given on the basis that I felt that the technology was inconclusive. And Now, that's partially a function of the bales being black instead of uh, zing bales. Zing bales would have made it conclusive one way or the other, but let's not go down that rabbit warren. But Divine wickets and runs in the first game, and as soon as she got out, it felt like it was game over, and it shouldn't feel that way. It, it shouldn't be, oh, well, safe's out that's it and in the second game she was out in the third over which meant that I'm like well you know are they seriously going to post a total from here that is going to threaten the Australians in the end no all they needed was one of their guns to come off Elisa Healy smacking 50 odd in the well, they, they made 50-odd in the power play, but Healy making the majority of those alongside Mooney. And then Lanning and Haynes going to work as they do so well and winning by eight wickets with a leg in the air. So, look, the first game in New Zealand actually had Australia in trouble with the ball. They had them 90-odd for six with maybe five or six overs to go. And sure enough, someone bobs up. On this occasion, Ashley Gardner hits three sixes in an over, I think it was, or maybe it was three sixes in two overs. Mm-hmm. And they, they just have so much so much depth that when you compare it to New Zealand who have the opposite problem and then you look at the selection table where Australia go out and pick 12 overs of spin in that second game realising it was a wearing track and New Zealand have one spinner in Amelia Kerr I mean they, they used Green's off spin a little bit as well but it felt as though they were they were caught short with Kasprick not being in the country at the moment they couldn't call upon her and yeah I mean it feels like a pretty significant mismatch for a contest Jeff that historically hasn't been a mismatch but now 
the gap between the teams is widening and, and that's a concern. And there's been a gap between the teams as far as one day international series go for a, a long time. I mean, New Zealand haven't won the Rose Bowl series for over 20 years, but they've generally been closer in 20 over cricket and this isn't the case at the moment. They've lost the last six or seven in a row that they've played against Australia. They lost both these games here. And I think a lot of it was about adaptability because these games were at Allen Border Field, which, you know, I I rocked up there. Obviously, I've, I've been to games at AB Field before, but don't sort of know that ground as well as, as others. But the, the Queensland experts that we had on commentary were all of the same mind that it's usually... A belter it's usually a pretty flat track and it's got smallish square boundaries and it's hard to defend and you tend to make big scores there but the the pitch that they had was was really quite slow for the first game and nobody could time big shots on it there were a lot of a lot of shots perishing to the infield on both sides and no one really got the pace of it except for Gardner and she was the one who played herself in she was 30 off about 32 I think at, at the midpoint mm. of her innings and then blew up at the back end once she'd properly got the pace of of the pitch and and knew what she was doing she was so consistent with her six hitting that there's a tree growing on the hill down over midwick and she hit the same tree three times in a row you know it was it was mercantile mutual cup sign sort of stuff with short arm jabs Uh, too weren't they 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 weren't like full mm. swings of the bat all three of them with the wind she was able to almost back her ball striking uh hand eye and i think that that's a that's a skill of Gardner in that not many players on a slow pitch can do that, which is about her freakish talent. But yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, the pitches were so slow. I mean, it, I know it's tough, and I know there's not a, not a lot of cricket start of the season, but a bit disappointing, really, given that the one variable that we talk about constantly in women's cricket is how quick are the pitches, and yeah. I think they were pretty good during the World Cup back in March. And it's a shame that you know the first time of asking mm. in the new home summer, and it's back to being pretty fairly turgid. Well, I, I think the issue was that they, the, the ground staff had been told that they needed to play all three of the T20s on the same wicket. And mm. so they rolled a bunch of grass clippings into it to try to, you know, g- get a bit of moisture to stay in it. But they, they didn't water it after the first one because they knew that they had to try to preserve it for the second one, which meant it dried out even more by the second game and that's why there was such a spin focus from Australia. They basically right. just... They have so many all-rounders in their team that they can just choose a different bowling attack on a different day. You can have a seam attack or a, or a spin attack. And one of the things that stood out, I think, was how that Australian team did not seem to miss Elise Perry at all, which seems mm. ridiculous when you're talking about the best player in the world. But, I mean, her her hamstring injury is worse and it's now been um, announced that she's going to miss the ODIs as well. She's going to miss the whole lot and just try to get back in time for the big bash. But there's been no need for her because, you know, she, she's best batting at the top of the order and there's no space for her at the top of the order. Um, and they haven't needed her bowling either because they, they wouldn't have been using much pace on sort of seam-up bowling in that second match either so and, and when it comes to New Zealand they look like a jumbled team they don't they, they've got a lot of bits and pieces players but not proper all-rounders and, and so you see these odd things where you've got you know Amelia Kerr who's primarily a spinner batting at six you've got Hayley Jensen who's more a bowler being promoted up into the top six as well you've got players like Lauren Down and, and uh, Katie Perkins who are specialist bats but who are batting down at eight or nine because and, you know they're not called upon to bowl but they're also it's there's sort of a feeling of like what's their actual job in the team you know why are they there and and their their domestic records and recent international records don't necessarily demand it but New Zealand are are just short on resources and in terms of players 
Yeah, and then they've got a player who can seriously hit the ball a long way, who can clear the rope, who we've seen do it on the global stage during the T20 World Cup. In Amelia Kerr, of course, she's the world record holder in 50-over cricket, the league spinning all-rounder. But she's almost hidden at six as, like, I guess, a finisher. I mean, why wouldn't they look to promote a player like that to try and set the tone alongside Divine? If one of them comes off, you know, and the other one doesn't, so be it. But it feels like, even, yes, yeah, strategically, they're missing a trick here. You know, I mentioned before they didn't have a second spin option, not a second full-time spin option in any case. In the second T20 after, it was fairly clear that that was the way this pitch was trending. And then not to sort of make any meaningful changes to the batting lineup either, I know that New Zealand are a competitive side and they want to win, but it sometimes feels as though with Australia, their adversary and their long-term rival, they almost just don't have that belief they can beat them, certainly not when playing in Australia. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I reckon a lot of it comes down to... I know I know that mentality is kind of a mumbo-jumbo thing in mm. a lot of sport, but in this particular case, you see this New Zealand team play so much better against other opponents than they do against Australia. Mm, and mm. maybe that's partly a function of quality, but it also seems like partly a function of, of timidity that they come up against Australia and think, well, bloody hell, how are we supposed to win, you know, rather than actually having any confidence that they can. So, look, it, it's been it's been underwhelming so far, um, but, you know, we can hope that they start to get things together. But you look at that batting order at the moment and it feels like they're spreading out their less good players and trying to make the flower go a bit further by mixing it with the sawdust um, in that, you know, having Maddie Green opening with Sophie Devine, they've, they've got Bates and Satterthwaite coming in three and four, but then, you know, Jensen getting promoted the other day or or, uh, mm. or Caddy Martin being dropped into the middle, that it's it's trying to spread out their better players through the order rather than using them all up at once. Yeah. And Jeff, just one final point before we move uh, back to the England Windy Series. We had Megan Shute on the final word in probably April or May in the middle of lockdown and I talked to her a couple of other times through that period as well and she was talking up the, the work she'd been doing on her slower balls and two overs in the back end of that first innings that she bowled in uh, on Saturday and four wickets all through slower balls. Every single ball she bowled was a slower ball and it was such an impressive display from a bowler that has... You know, one obvious major trick that's being able to hoop that in-swinger, but over time she's developed these raft of slower balls which are serving her so well. Yeah, she was impressive at the back end in that, I mean, New Zealand weren't really in that game. You know, they needed, what, 40-plus off the last three overs and, and mm. hadn't been going well all day, but there was still... There was still a chance that a big over could have got them into the game and, and she came on to bowl, I think, with three overs to go and yep. they were just absolute wreckage by the end of that over. You know, absolutely no chance to get anywhere near it. So they've got one more T20 to play uh, on Wednesday, which is around about when this episode will be coming out. And then there's the, the three-match one-day series where, you know, I, I think New Zealand with the lack of power in their batting might be more suited to the 50-over game, but they do not play well against Australia in 50-over cricket. So... A fair bit of uphill work for them to do, but it's looked pretty similar watching the West Indies play England over there. I mean, they've there seems to be a similar dynamic of a, a team that doesn't really think that it has a path to victory against a, a better funded, you know, better resourced, more organised opponent. Yeah, there are some stark parallels there, aren't there, between uh, the Windies and their relationship with England as it is to New Zealand with Australia. 
Look, we joked before we came on air, I hadn't seen the, the second half of the uh, scorecard from last night with England and the Windies, and I was just going off to check it, and I made some joke like, well, I bet you they finished on 117 for nine. In the end, it was 122 for nine. I had no knowledge of that. The reason I knew it is because it's always the same. The Windies concede about eight or nine and over to England, and England concede about 110 or 120 to the Windies while taking most of the wickets along the way, and England win by roughly 40 or 50 runs. Every game they play against each other, whether it was at the World Cup earlier this year, uh, the bilateral series they played in England last year, the four games we've seen already so far here, that mental block that New Zealand have with Australia is certainly replicated with the Windies when it comes to England. There's just this big mismatch. And there's the same sort of thing of the hopes of competing being built around, you know, three players, but really one player. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if Sophie Devine has a blinder, it, New Zealand might win. If Deandra Dotton has a blinder, the West Indies might win. Although mm-hmm. it, it's... It feels significant that it's now Dotton. I mean, Stefani Taylor used to be the player who had to carry the West Indies. She's really fallen away in the last couple of years. I, you know, she looks like a shadow of the player she once was in, or was recently, fairly recently was in the 20-over format from the games that I've been watching. But Dotton has come back with a vengeance. She's been so good through the first three, you know, made big runs in the first three games back-to-back. And she's looks like they might be in a chase as long as she's there for the whole time. She's She's got her swagger back and and has got her power back over the leg side but she's got no support I mean that first game I think it was her runs and then everyone else made single figures yeah, I think that's spot on. So there's Dotton, there was Taylor, and we hoped there would be Matthews. And yeah. Hayley Matthews, player of the World Cup final in 2016, as a, what, was she 16 or 17 at the time? I think she I was eight, interviewing 18 her. or 19, but yeah, she was very yeah, much. Yeah, she was young, and I interviewed her that year, later in the year, and she's like, she wanted to be the best all-rounder in the world. She wanted to be the most destructive, powerful player in the world, and she's not kicked on. Her bowling is still useful, her off spin, Mm. but when it comes to what she does with the bat, it is so hit and miss, and it's been the same in this series. So she's meant to be a senior player in this team now, and she she can barely get it off the square. So, I mean, you're right. They rely on Dotton. They rely on Matthews. I mean, with the ball, you know, they've got the sort of old stages in in Connell uh, and Dotton and Taylor bowling their their most important overs, but seldom able to penetrate the England top order. I think that's been an important part of the series for England is that with the exception of Danny White, who's yet to get a score, and Fran Wilson, who actually lost her spot for the fourth game. They've got one more to come tomorrow. All their batters at some point have gotten in and made big scores, whether that's Tammy Beaumont in the first game. Heather Knight, I think it was the third game. Nat Siver made an 80-odd to be player of the match in the televised game. All the games were, of course, on Sky, but there was a quite important moment on Saturday where, in addition to Sky, the BBC had the game on in full live all day or throughout the afternoon, which is the first live game on Freedom television for England's women since the 1993 World Cup final which is worth mentioning in passing and then yesterday we saw runs as well from Amy Jones who executed a brilliant stumping on Saturday backed it up with uh, 55 off 37 when England were in just a fraction of trouble early on having lost three wickets inside the first nine overs it was Amy Jones who having been shuffled down uh, to number five and number six in this series playing more of the role as a finisher and that's where she's going to have to play because there's no room in the inn uh, to open uh, Tammy Beaumont's opening again as she should be really after having a poor World Cup they're always going to go with White at the top of the list. Siva is their standard number three in T20s and the captain Knight will always bat four. So for Jones to have a role, she's going to have to make a finisher of herself and she did pretty well in that first innings last night. England making 166 and, and keeping the West Indies to 122 for nine as I mentioned before with Sophie Eccleston and Sarah Glenn, the two spinners. Maddie Villiers in there as well. I mean, Jeff, uh, Sophie Eccleston 
is now, I think, without a shadow of a doubt, the best bowler in the world. And she's so consistent. She's so good. And now that she's got Sarah Glenn, who bowls wrist spin, and Maddie Villiers, the other young off-spinner in there as well, they are a really well-rounded attack. They tick all the boxes, and they've got the variety through the order as well. And, and so when, you know, when you've got this, what's often the curse of women's cricket in, in getting dud pitches and, and slow wickets, you know, that you need those spin options. And, and so that's what they've been able to put together. But I just keep thinking about the West Indies bowling and what it might be. You know, I, like I remember chatting to Shamelia Connell at the T20 World Cup back in March. You you look at, you know, players like Chanel Henry. The West Indies have mm. these really powerfully built, tall, strong seam bowlers who can generate pretty rapid pace but should be able to generate even more. You know, they've got players who who look like they should be able to deliver the goods, but the consistency is nowhere near what it needs to be. And so there was that third game was the one where they were closest to getting a win, where they they looked like they were bowling well to England. They were bowling well to England at points. They looked like they might hold England back at points, but there were always a couple of bad deliveries that let a couple of boundaries get scored, and, and Nat Siver was able to bat through and make eighty plus, make her highest score in the format. Um, and you know, and, and similarly in the run chase, there were moments where it looked like it might be on, but ultimately it wasn't on. And so you look at the consistency and variety that England have in their attack versus the complete opposite of it in the West Indies attack. I mean, the building blocks are there, but it's like the resources being put into the women's game in the Caribbean are scant and there doesn't seem to be any possibility of developing those players under the the current structures and the current funding regimes. Yeah, you see some teams in T20 able to use eight bowlers and it's it's a sign of strength. I mean, you talked about Australia before with... Someone like Sophie Molyneux, who bowled in the first game, I think, two overs, and in the second game was player of the match, taking two for 17. She was responsible for getting Sophie Devine out, and they had that chance to swing from game to game. With the Windies, when they use Connell, Selman, Henry, Dotton, Fletcher, Taylor, Matthews, Grimmond, it's a sign that they are fragile because they don't know where their 20 overs are coming from. They're doing their best to stitch it together. Uh, And even though a a lot of those names are senior bowlers or senior players, they're being asked to do too much. Uh, Certainly when it comes to Taylor Matthews and Dotton, they are the spine of the batting lineup. And then they're being asked to bowl four overs apiece as well on a good day. So, yeah, it does feel as though they've regressed considerably since even the T20 World Cup in the Caribbean in 2018 when they made the semi-final before getting smashed by Australia. Of course, they beat England heavily in that in that competition on home soil at St Lucia. A fantastic night that was, but they aren't close and frankly, nor in New Zealand. And when you consider how far Australia are in front of the pack, we are really relying on England and India to stay strong and get stronger. And maybe South Africa, I know, Jeff, you know, I'm kind of obsessed with the South African women's team and what they could be one day. But, you know, it, it's it's that second tier down. It isn't a two-speed economy in women's cricket. It's like a, a four-speed economy, and that's that's a problem. So that needs to be addressed. And as we talked about on the show three or four weeks ago, when it comes to the next generation of ICC reform, I think that that's where centralised contracts that are being funded by the ICC would be a very wise idea to look into because if you can get rid of that disparity with the developing nations and the second tier nations then hopefully that investment will be more consistent across the board but if it's just going to be an arms race well we know who will win every single time. Australia, England and India can 
be as competitive as they want with each other, but they've got to be able to get together to put enough money into the other teams to, to make sure that they're more competitive across the world. We will have a little look at what's been happening connected to the Indian game because in the IPL there was one of one of the more ridiculous games that's ever happened. We, we don't talk about IPL games match by match, but sometimes when something happens you have to talk <laughs> about it. Rahul Tawatia is someone you might not have heard a great deal about, you know, an all-rounder, bowls some leg spin, does some hitting down the order, doesn't do anything particularly brilliantly but one of those players who can contribute in a in a range of ways the match that he played for Rajasthan against the Kings 11 Punjab which if you're looking at it in Australian terms is Steve Smith's team versus Glenn Maxwell's team <laughs> um, what 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 an extraordinary game of cricket it saw the largest ever successful run chase in the IPL so Rajasthan chased 224 to win which is ridiculous enough across 20 overs. It involved the the save, the boundary save by Nicholas Puran, the West Indies batsman, which to hark back to happy birthday, Sachin, Sachin popped up a tweet to say that that was the best save he'd ever seen in his life. Now, normally when you've got a, a player jumping up to flick a ball back into play, they're doing it facing the ball and they're sort of jumping up with their arms over their heads and, and flicking it as they fall backwards. This one was going forwards and he dived full length out of the arena, out of <laughs> past the rope to grab this ball, which means, of course, you're facing the wrong way to throw it because you're in midair and you've got no nothing to brace against. And so he somehow managed to underarm it behind himself before he landed face flat on the dirt. It was a... I mean, that alone, Adam, was probably worth spending an episode on or at least a segment on. What I found remarkable about the Puran bit of fielding was that... Well, there's a few things here. One is that there's a health and safety thing we're going to have to start considering about T20 cricket. If guys are willing to do a Superman dive from the edge of the rope, at some point someone's head's going to crash into the advertising hoardings, which I think we should be mindful of noting as we, um, as we sort of uh, see more and more of this because it was such a spectacular... It reminded me of a footballer running back with the flight of the ball, you know, knowing they were going to get collected. It was that degree of bravery to go full stretch dive. And the timing, I mean, everything needs to go right for him to be able to get that midair and then to have the presence of mind to basically throw it backhanded to keep it in play. It was said on the call at the time, we'll never see a better one than that. And maybe that's true. We've, we've said that before about boundary fielding. Seeing Glenn Maxwell's face kind of said it all. Even he was impressed. And that says, that, you know, if, if you've won the, um, the adulation of Glenn Maxwell, who's made an art form of that particular technique over the years, then you're doing something right. But it shows how far the game has come when it comes to boundary fielding to an extent. I mean, it flows on from our conversation about Dean Jones on, on Friday, Jeff, about his legacy as a, as a fielder on the boundary rope and what it was and what it became, you know, what the job of a sweeper was in 50 over cricket, which was literally to make sure that boundaries weren't hit and to keep it down to one into what they do now, which is just extraordinary. But yeah, I do wonder and do ponder whether that might just provide a bit of pause about what they may need to do in terms of where the rope sits in, in comparison to the boundary board because he wasn't far away for, at all from that being a, a real problem but I don't want to diminish from the athleticism of the return though that was just crazy and brilliant and 
as the commentator said, the best we've ever seen. Would it be crazy to consider that we should dig a moat around the ovals and fill them with those foam blocks like you used to have in the gymnasiums <laughs> just to encourage it? So, yeah, just like go for gold, dive dive as, as far out as, as you possibly can. And well, maybe. Maybe that's where we get to. Maybe some sort of some sort of moat with foam in it, like it's a knockout, is the solution mm. to this or a child's soft play centre. That may be where we get to. Maybe James Sherry could be consulted because I know he does a lot of work with Cricket Australia as, as the ground announcer these days, having moved on from Saturday Disney in the early 90s. Maybe Jay Shares is, is the person to consult about this. I'm just, I'm just throwing some ideas out there for free. No, no, not unreasonably either. I, I feel a bit for James Sherry, given that he probably did that role on Saturday Disney for two or three years, but it was the two or three years when we were kids, so we'll always remember him for that. Hmm. He's been at CA for like 20 years. He's been doing this job for such a long time compared to uh, his brief spell on, on kids' television, although I'm probably forgetting about Amazing yeah. as well, that wonderful show yeah. of the mid-90s that followed find, all the find same. the key. Look, the, the, the thing that was fascinating and great about the Rahul Tawatia innings was not that it was successful, but was the bit where it was unsuccessful, in that this was... You can have a sort of public failure in T20 cricket in a way that you can't really have batting in other forms where a handful of dot balls in a T20 makes all the difference. So Rajasthan's chasing 224, which means they need to be scoring boundaries every over. They get off to a good start. Steve Smith makes a 50. They're, they're what, 100-plus at the halfway mark, but there's still a, a long way to go. And Tawatia gets promoted because he's a left-hander and he's supposed to be able to smash the leg spinner, but he cannot hit the ball. He keeps missing. He, he'll squirt a single maybe, then he'll get a dot ball, a dot ball, then he'll get another single. And at the other end, he's got Sanju Sampson smashing sixes pretty much at will. But every time there's a single and the strike changes over, the momentum dies. And it's painful to watch. And you've got all of these people saying, this is the point where they should be strategically retiring players. You mm. know, he's been mm. out there for three overs. He cannot hit the spin. He can't get the spinners away. It's not working. He's got he's to kick his stumps over. He's got to gallop down the wicket. And there's even a point there where Sampson bashes a couple of sixes. Then he miscues a shot which rolls away for what would be one and he turns down the run about three balls into the over like he's farming the strike with the number 11. He says, no thanks, no single, I'll stay up here. Hits another six. But then he gets out and then it's, you know, now it's like all of the pressure is on. And it, it's at this point where Rahul Tuatia has, I think, eight runs off 18 deliveries or something like that when they they need a, a you know, they need to be making 15 or 16 and over and, and he's going at three and over. And then he hits five sixes in a row. He hits five sixes in an over <laughs> from Sheldon Cottrell. Makes 30 runs in six balls. Um, hits another one the next over. The, then a wicket falls. Then Joffre Archer comes out. Hits two sixes in a row. Uh, and then Tawatia gets out just before the end. But by the time he's out, he's got them down to the point where they only need two runs off the last over. So they needed 84 from five overs. And then that equation became they needed two from the last over. So they made 82 runs in four overs um, to, to get up there and win the game. And it was one of the most ridiculous turnarounds for an individual you will ever see because everybody watching that game was saying, get him off. And then by the end of it, he's the one who won them the game. Yeah, I, I saw some of the stuff on Twitter uh, where that discussion about retiring out was, was well, prominent for obvious reasons. And then... To see that turnaround, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, obviously that's against the grain. You, you can't see a performance like that and expect that players will recover that way. I mean, usually when a player's trending that way, they get out that way desperately, and that's 
you know, the, the, just the, the nature of the game. But yes, this will be celebrated. It'll it'll make him a lot of money that innings. You can be sure that now, having shown that he's able to do that, especially after struggling to begin, it'll mm. make him a very valuable asset in terms of uh, teams looking for finishers. We always are talking about how in T20 sides they're front loaded with players that can bat one, two, and three, but have far fewer players that are good facing ten or twenty balls at the end. Well, if you can do that after going like a busted for the first four overs, you're in you know first twenty balls or whatever he faced. Then I suspect the next time they they auction players, he'll be well placed to earn a shed load of money. I could see it working in advertising, you know, a bit like Stephen Bradbury doing the the supermarket ads where everyone would fall over at the register and then he'd walk up to the front of the queue. I could see this working where like Rahul Tawati is having a, a really terrible time with his car insurance or whatever it is and then and then he makes the switch to another company and it all turns around dramatically just at the last minute and now he's a winner. Positive vibes only about great Steve Bradbury, please, Jeff. Positive vibes yeah, only. I'm very positive about Stephen Bradbury. He nearly died on the rink uh, practising a couple of times and still came back to win great a gold man. medal. It was all strategy. It was all strategy. I was, he, no, he did ads. He, did, he, he made fun of himself in these advertisements. He, he coined in, you've got to take the cash when it's being offered. But if, if you want to find out about that match and that innings, go and find Sid Monger wrote oh, yeah. one, of the, one of the great piece. articles on ESPN Crick Info. I mean, he usually writes pretty good stuff, but this was, by his, even by his standards, an immaculate piece. So... Go and see if you can dig that out. I think we're pretty close to the end of the show. I think we are as well. You've done well, Jeff. Well steered. Thank you. I uh, like to, to try to get us through the, the choppy waters. It's It's been the final word, as it usually is. It's been with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Thanks to the Lord's Taverners for uh, introducing us to Lloyd, who'll be going up hill and down Dale wearing his diving suit. Uh, check out their link in the show notes if you want to help them out. The show gets released by Bad Producer Productions on their podcast network. Lots of other shows there for you to check out. It's edited by David Collins. No relation. And uh, f- what else do we have to say? I've got a little Winnie update before we go. I think that people okay. will like to hear. She slept through the night for the first time last night. Oh. Which is oh. a bit of a thing. It's a bit of a that's thing. That's good. That's that's more special for you than for anyone else. Yeah, but it's just worth noting uh, that, yeah. that she she went to. I put her to bed at seven, and then with the exception of what they call a dream feed, where she gets a little bit of boob um, at sort of ten p.m. when she doesn't quite wake up, uh, and then she went all the way through until seven o'clock this morning before she wanted to get up and have some mm. more milk. So after seven and a half months, she's bloody done it. She's broken the that, back of this thing. So how that must feel like such a relief it, it is and yet i still feel quite tired today that might come through in my presentation come to think of it but yeah I, st- I feel quite knackered but it's more i can't link it back to winnie for once so she's playing her role she's now sleeping at last <laughs> um, i'm very glad to hear it uh, thank you to everyone who supports the show everyone on patreon you literally make this possible we wouldn't be doing this ridiculous thing two times a week without your help and love and support keep the messages coming we love to get your correspondence if you'd like to send us a nerd pledge and join in the fun go to patron.com slash the final word make yourself an account and you can send us through that information uh, you can leave ratings and reviews and whatnot on the podcast platforms and aside from that the best thing you can do for us is have a bloody fantastic week tune into the cricket when it's on uh, i'll be on the radio doing the australia games 
uh, we'll be on the internet doing the things that we variously do there as well. So uh, we look forward to your company. The next time that we do this, there'll be story time on the weekend. We haven't decided who it'll be with. It'll probably be with uh, James Pattinson, won't it? I think so. I think Paddo's yeah. next on, next up for story time. All right. I think that's the reboot of the interview and there'll be plenty of historical exploration then. Uh, that's enough. Outro. It's been a long one. It's been a good one. It's the final word. We'll see you next time. Bye.